0: If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. Growing up, I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through eighth grade, but I used to take the public school bus home. One day, my neighbor friend saw me being dropped off by the bus and I was wearing my uniform which I don't think he'd ever seen me in before because when we hung out, it was always after school. So like any typical 12-year-old, he started asking questions. Why do you wear a uniform? What makes your school different than mine? Why do you need to learn about your religion anyway? That one stopped me in my tracks, and I remember responding to him with, well, what do you know about your religion? He didn't have an answer. I had and still have a lot of friends who aren't Catholic and have questions about certain things we do in our faith. And even Catholic friends who are a little foggy on the whole idea of why someone would want to be Catholic. For me, I was born into it. I don't know any other way of living. But for those who have never experienced it, who've maybe only heard about the Catholic Church being strict or full of rules or elitist, why would someone want to become Catholic? And going a step further, why is it that the Catholic Church is seen as having this overarching authority, a predominant presence, if it's not respected as an institution? Today, Father Jonathan Sawicki, pastor at Prince of Peace Parish in Steelton and vocations director for the diocese, joins me to unpack these notions, diving deep into the history and tradition, and I cannot wait for you to hear it. Father Shawicki, thank you so much for joining me on today's broadcast. I'm really excited to have you back on the program. It's always great to have an, have you here and talk to you about some pretty powerful topics.
1: Thank you for the invitation, Rachel, to be here.
0: So it's been a little while since we've talked about your history and what you do for the church. So can you talk to me a little bit about why did you become Catholic and what your role with Catholicism is now.
1: That's a that's a really good question and one that I have to answer not directly because I I was born Catholic. My parents are Catholic, my grandparents all the way through the family tree. Now, in my own family perspective, my dad was uh raised Latin Roman Catholic, my mother was raised Ukrainian Greek Catholic. So there is a a flavor of another version of Christianity, Catholic Christianity within our family background. But we were raised Catholic and so Uh, I was probably three and a half weeks old, I think, when my parents walked up the street to St. Paul's Chapel and I was baptized. And I'm the last of five kids, and they did the same thing for all my brothers and sisters. However, um, Catholicism isn't just a birthright. It's also a conscious decision. I remember in eighth grade confirmation and in the Diocese of Harrisburg then and now, we typically confirm kids in eighth grade. Sister Alexandra Marie, was a a Felician sister who was teaching us religion, said, pray for a gift of the Holy Spirit especially, one of the gifts that you want especially on the day of your confirmation. Okay? Now, maybe she said that to all the kids. And how many of the other kids took it to heart? I prayed for the gift of understanding. I remember praying. I said, I really want the gift of understanding because there's things I don't get. And I really love this faith, but I know I don't understand it all. And I think that a result of that, I, I really believe that that gift was given because there's a doc, I, personally there's a docility that I'm not one that wrestles and gets into existential crises or um, heightened anxieties about teachings of the church or even uh, problems within the church because I, I think that I have this trust that God's in control and and. I'm I'm really I'm willing and able to to work with that, and I want to say roll with the punches. I have those little sayings. You just got to roll with the punches. It it'll all work out. We just have to you know keep our. One of my old former parish council members at a previous assignment in New York said, "Father, keep the eye on the ball. We have to keep our eye on the ball and not be distracted by other things. And the eye on the ball is ultimately our relationship with Jesus Christ. I really think that that moment of confirmation and that outpouring of the Holy Spirit in that sacrament. I think did something special in my life when preparing for this podcast, and I was thinking, well, I I never really became Catholic, but I became I think committed, you know, because of that that gift of confirmation, that gift of the Spirit, and that gift of that's gift of the Holy Spirit we call understanding. As a vocation director in the Diocese of Harrisburg, I, I, I am pastor of a parish in Steelton Prince of Peace Parish in Steelton, but in my ministry as vocation director of the diocese, I have to help young people hear that same call. And there's a lot of waves out there. There's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of uh programming that's coming from other sources, whether it's TikTok or YouTube, social other social media sites, or even what kids are learning in secular environments. I, I have to laugh, Rachel. You know, people will say, oh, the church is indoctrinating its youth. And it's like, well, we call it catechizing. We we call it presenting the good news. So, how is that different indoctrination than what other kids get in other social studies classes? Exactly. So, we're we're just presenting the teachings of Jesus Christ and 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 what he entrusted to us. We we do it joyfully, you know. The other thing about being Catholic, and some people say, well, you're a member of a cult. You know, you hear this every now and then. It's like, well. The amount of ex-Catholics running around the United States of America, we're a really lousy cult, because part about being a cult is that you can't leave. And we have plenty of people that leave all the time. And it's like, listen, folks, come up with a better insult, okay, because it's just not. It's not the case. It's a free choice. And being a vocation director, it's building on that free choice of someone wants to be a disciple of Jesus Christ how are they willing to take that to the next level? Is If God is calling them to take it to the next level of ordained ministry or consecrated life within the church, I help them with that discernment. I, I don't make the decision for them. I, I try to help lead it out from within them in their own life of prayer. But it, that vocation of service in the church is already based—it's it, it's, it's based on the supposition of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, which— which is that choice. Why should one be Catholic?
0: Absolutely. I love what you said about praying for the understanding and being able to to make that choice. Because like you, I was also born Catholic. My parents baptized me. But I made the choice in eighth grade to be confirmed. Now, in between eighth grade and probably like seven, eight, nine years ago, There were some times where I, like, wasn't the biggest fan of the church or, you know, God and I had a pretty rocky relationship, but I didn't know, I didn't know any other way because to me it was the truth. So I always kept going back to the truth, and I feel like that's very true for a lot of Catholics, but for those who aren't Catholic or agnostic or maybe they're part of some other, you know, Christian identity, why should they consider becoming Catholic and not just Christian?
1: Sure. That, I mean, that's that that's a beautiful question. Meditated on at the Second Vatican Council especially. So I, my first love is history, and, and I think it's important to put that perspective. You know, for many years we'd say, you're either in the church or out of the church. If you're not in the church, you're going to H-E-double hockey stick, okay? And then we're, we're realizing, you know, there are people who really love the Lord not in the Catholic church, There are people who know the Scriptures and know Jesus Christ who are not in the Catholic Church. How do we explain this as Catholics who believe that—because ultimately what I would say is I believe that this is the church founded by Jesus Christ who entrusted authority to Peter and to the Twelve, the ministry of forgiveness of sins, the ministry of teaching, and of the mandate to go and make disciples of all nations— I believe that Jesus and the church believes that Jesus entrusted this to those apostles, and those apostles are with us in the present day with our college of bishops, okay? Bishops in communion with the bishop of Rome, the pope, okay? Now, there are people who say, well, some of your bishops are real real schleps. Well, you're right. And this indefectibility, this uh, this principle in the church that she will always keep the faith entrusted to her intact doesn't mean that the church, her members, her ministers are impeccable, which means perfect, okay? Sometimes it's despite our imperfections that Jesus's grace continues on through the ages through the ministers of the church and through the community of believers. Um, Which One of the English authors, was it Chesterton or... T.S. Eliot or Hilaire Belloc, um, C.S. Lewis was not Catholic, but it's one of those English authors who said, I, I I I know that the church is of divine origin because no other institution with such navish, navish imbecility could otherwise have survived as long as she has. Um, now, I think that's almost a direct quote. I've seen it enough times, but I just don't remember who it was. But having said that, we believe that Jesus Christ founded this church with with Peter as, as this foundational rock. You are Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church. Okay. Um, going back, well, what about other Christian denominations? The church at the Second Vatican Council recognized that there are elements of truth and of the beauty of Christianity within those other Christian communities it's certainly present within our brothers and sisters in the Orthodox churches who who preserved the seven sacraments and the sacrament of holy orders and the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, which is really the source and summit of the Christian life. But the other Christian communities, we have to see that there is one God, one faith, one baptism, and that baptism is indeed present in those communities, and you can see how that grace of baptism is at work. I use this... In when I when my first assignment in Gettysburg, there was a college professor who was beginning to take instructions in the Catholic faith. She was raised Lutheran, and she said to me, "Father, I want to become Catholic because I believe that this is what Jesus is asking me, but I loved my Lutheran upbringing and and Luther, being part of the Lutheran youth and the national Lutheran gatherings of youth and and i said well you're you're going to sacrifice." some things, because there's certain beauty, like the Bach chorales that are present in the, the liturgical traditions. You know, I, I sometimes I say to my parishioners, I want you singing like a bunch of Protestants this morning, because they know how to sing, and Catholics are a little bit more sheepish typically. And I said to her, to put your mind at ease, in the Rite of Christian Initiation for Adults, now it's called the Order of Christian Initiation for Adults, OCIA. It's been re- reworked a little bit. Oh. And you know, it's You'll get that memo eventually. Um, but the, uh, the, the, then in the RCIA, when receiving someone into full communion, and notice how we say that, someone in the other Christian communities, they're not converting because they already, we presume that they know Jesus Christ, they're not converting from paganism. They're being received into full communion. And what does that imply? That they're already in partial communion because of their faith in Jesus Christ and because of their baptism. But we're receiving. I said that's number one. You're being received into full communion, because grace has already been active in your life. And secondly, the celebrant of that rite is instructed to offer prayers of gratitude to God for the faith and virtue taught by your previous Christian community. And she said, "Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful." And it put her mind at ease that she's not renouncing, you know, the, the evils of her ways. She's Rather, running toward this full communion that Jesus prayed for at the Last Supper when he said, Father, I pray that they all may be one as you are in me and I am in you. So I think that that's the why. There's that difference. This is what Jesus founded, and he founded it with the apostolic tradition and with the celebration of the sacraments. And in that apostolic tradition, there's the sacred scriptures, there's the way of prayer, our liturgy. These are instituted by Christ For various reasons, because of human weakness, we end up with sad divisions, and we go back to that invitation to people, what did Jesus initiate? One time I had a discussion with someone in uh, one of our separated brothers, and they might have been in more of the Pentecostal realm or something. I said, so you mean to tell me that what you believe is that the Holy Spirit was asleep Between approximately 300 AD and 1884, until the Isuzu Street Revival, that that the Holy Spirit ceased to work in the church. And then the the look in their eyes, they say, Yes, I believe that. I said, Well, that's pretty sad to say that the Holy Spirit wasn't guiding the church in the development of its doctrines and, and traditions and practices. Do we believe the Holy Spirit's alive at work or not? And if it is alive at work, and it has been these 2,000-some-odd years, we're part of that, and we, we, I believe that it's been present in our church despite our uh, lack of—despite our peccability, our, our sinfulness, and our imperfections.
0: Absolutely. I, I love what you said about how that parishioner, she wasn't, she wasn't converting because she already had a, a relationship and she already was in partial communion. It kind of—I forget who said it, but it reminds me of the analogy of Like being on a boat and you have this boat with a captain and a crew and uh, it's piled on with food and and you start sailing and like you're on a long journey and eventually, you know, you kind of get fed up with the crew because you know, they get old and they die or they have to be replaced or the captain dies and has to be replaced. And you might not like the new captain or you might not like the crew. And some people decide, well, you know what? I think I could do it better. I'm going to go build my own boat. Well, you're in the middle of the ocean. So what are you going to do to build your own boat? You're going to take from the first boat and go build your own and start off on your own path. And that kind of reminds me of like the different sects of Christianity that there are, that there's one big boat. Because you can see a lot of elements like baptism and just honestly just belief in, in God as there's one God in Presbyterian and Methodist and all the other different Christian sects.
1: This is off the topic, but this is something uh, the late Pope Benedict XVI really put his finger on when he went to England in his state visit to England, and he experienced choral evensong in Westminster Abbey. And it was an Anglican—it's an Anglican production right after the English Reformation. And he saw how beautiful it was, and then— he was lobbied both as head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and then as a bis- as Bishop of Rome, as Pope. Listen, can there be a space for Anglicans who still want to retain their liturgical and, they say, their patrimony, their liturgical and spiritual traditions and still be Catholic? Because, I mean, anybody who's ever listened to choral Evensong on BBC3 online, you know how magnificent it is. And they're like, we don't want to give this up. And they're just singing the Psalms. And you come into the Catholic Church, and by and large, we're just mass-heavy, and there is no choral even song on Sunday evenings because we're doing the evening masses because we have to get the last chance mass, you know, for the neighborhood. And, And they didn't want to lose that. And the Pope said, listen, this is an element of truth and goodness, and it leads people to Christ. And basically, he kind of confirmed it as Catholic. It was written by Archbishop Kramner, who was very much a Protestant, but yet he recognized that there's nothing contrary to the Catholic faith in its celebration, and really, it, so one of the real legacies of uh, of Pope Benedict in the United States uh, and England and in Australia, what they call the Ordinariates, where these Anglicans have come into full communion with the Church while keeping some of this heritage that they didn't want to give up. Mm. Um, it, it can be hard, you know. People, many of our Catholic churches are a lot larger than our Protestant brothers and sisters. And sometimes they're looking like, I go from my congregation where we know everybody by name and have coffee hour after every Sunday service, and then I'm going to go to the Catholic Church, and I'm going to become the number in the database, and uh, there's a monthly pancake breakfast I have to pay for, okay? It's not the free coffee and donuts. They, They lose a lot of that. Now, they gain communion with the worldwide church, but yet they do lose some of that other almost traditional aspects around those smaller congregations. It was described to me one time by a priest who's a convert that he said, he said, John, right now there's a lot of these little boats adrift at sea because many of these larger Protestant denominations are kind of splintering and there are these people in these boats not knowing where to go because they know it has to be larger than just a small handful of their people from their former denomination or congregation. And they're looking at this ocean liner with the church with its rusted hull and sometimes very imperfect crew hand and captain. But yet it's a lot more secure than the little dinghy out at the sea. And he said that's where a lot of people and some ministers are. Is this where we're being led? Because it doesn't look like it's perfect. But yet it it is what... I would say Christ found it
0: right, right. I love how you brought it back around to the boat reference that was that was pretty that's cool. the second cup of coffee this morning, so <laughs> I love it, so the church teaches very definitively, not just optionally it's not here's a here's an idea, and we think that you sh- we think that you should do this it's no this this is the it's the hard and fast rule this is this is what we're saying, period end of sentence you know we had all those uh, the council of nicaea and all those meetings of the bishops and the pope to kind of kind of like lay out the law and i feel like every christian in the world believes this in some way whether they want to admit it or not that the catholic church has the authority to teach what gives us that authority
1: ultimately it's jesus christ in his interactions with the apostles and go to saint john's gospel and the high priestly prayer of Christ, consecrate them in the truth, your word is truth. And then it's prayer for unity during that high priestly prayer. So that's at the Last Supper. And what was you know a beautiful retreat I went on a number of years ago, the retreat master, my, my former and late spiritual director, Father Fred Miller from Newark, was just brilliant and a great retreat master. He said, gentlemen, this is the prayer of consecration of their ordination. Jesus is consecrating them for the ministry of the truth and his teachers. And then, of course, Jesus uh, dies, and then he's denied by these guys who he just commissioned, okay? All that John the Evangelist kind of flee in fear. Peter denies, okay, but it's all made up for in the post-resurrection appearances. Even poor Thomas, you know. You, you doubt one time, and he's called Doubting Thomas ever, ever <laughs> after, but... um there you have these, 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 these figures, these apostolic figures who are given this commission. And then, of course, at Jesus' ascension into heaven, he gives them the great commission to go forth and to do in his name all that he has commanded and to teach it to the other nations, you know, to, to go forth and to carry that on. So th- this is where we believe this authority comes from. And then I think that you look, how was this exercised? In some of the early councils in the East, the Pope wasn't present, but his legate was. Or I think it was 451, Pope St. Leo the Great uh, sent a letter to the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and then the Council Fathers read this letter, which was talking about the humanity and divinity of Jesus, and they said, Peter has spoken through Leo. Okay, and then th- this is that—that's th- in the East, and so there's this kind of primacy that was afforded to St. Peter. You get into modern—I uh, or I want to say modern, even though it's 1,500 years old—but th- these, these modern um, splits, whether it's between the, the Catholic West and the Orthodox East, and the Orthodox East, who would still have the gathering of councils, but they don't recognize a papal figure— they'll say that the patriarch of Constantinople is first among equals until there's a war with the, you know, and the patriarch of Moscow is on a different side, and they're saying, well, we're going to exclude them. And so that that's the weakness of, of that first among equals thought when it's like, well, what did Jesus establish with the primacy of Peter? And so I think that that's where we look at the council of bishops or the the the, the gathering of bishops, the college of bishops, in communion with the successor of Saint Peter, as this ultimate authority in church, and ultimately, as the, as the, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, has that ultimate and immediate jurisdiction in order to um, in, in in order to teach and to resolve conflict. There's a this is kind of funny as a pastor s- say s- say the boiler breaks down on a cold day and then. A pastor doesn't have the money readily to pay for the repairs. Okay. Now, that doesn't really happen in the diocese of Harrisburg because we have some checks and balances to be able to facilitate these necessary repairs and, you know, so people don't have to go frigid the entire winter. And then people will say, well, why doesn't the Pope take care of this? You know, sell, have him sell one of his chalices and we can get the boiler taken care of. And then you'd say, yeah, the Pope's really concerned about a boiler in East, Tim, East uh, Timbuktu, right? Because we have to remember. That every bishop, there's a Petrine principle present in every bishop, that the bishop is the head teacher of his diocese. So, I mean, that's the responsibility. The bishop isn't just a branch manager of a diocese for the pope, the bishop is the head of the local church, and that's a great teaching authority. And, and even, even on that local level, there's that present teaching authority. Here's the issue. People, when they're attacking the church for its teachings, are really saying, we want you to change the teachings because you're pricking our conscience. It's it's the backward compliment, backhanded compliment. Or when they say, we expected more from you, clergy. Thank you. Have high standards for your clergy. Okay? And so when people say, clergy's irrelevant because of the sins and we expected more from you, oh, so you're really admitting that we are relevant, but you just expect higher standards because we do it in the name of Jesus Christ. So I mean, so these are the kind of the backward ways that, yeah, you're recognizing that there is something not just of this flesh and blood of this earth, but there's something of divine origin in, in what we are practicing.
0: That's really fascinating that you that you said it that way, like whether they want to admit it, they, under, they acknowledge that, I don't know if divinity is the right word, mm-hmm. um, but the... Authority that comes with the title, Mm -hmm. and they're always they're always ready to go straight to the pope or like they want to know what the pope says or what the bishop says about something. And if if the bishop says one thing, it's like, well, I don't really I don't really like that rule, so we're just (laughs) gonna like not we're not gonna do that. But everything else he said is is fine. Like that's that's just kind of the impression that I get of like everybody's looking to one position and they're like, well. That's good, but we're, we're going to go over here and do this. So, like, for instance, in a lot of other non-Catholic churches, there are women as pastors or leaders of their church family. But there are none in the Catholic church, like no women as priests or bishops or anything like that, which leads people who are not Catholic to an argument that the Catholic church is against women, which we know is not true. But for argument's sake, why can't women be priests?
1: That's a pertinent question, and it's something that is going to stay pertinent for as long as I'm alive.
0: There is so much valuable information packed into this episode that we couldn't contain it in just one episode. Make sure to listen next week for more of my conversation with Father Sawicki about the authority of the Catholic Church. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org DAC and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.